I have one objective this morning, one, one singular objective, and that is to make sure, make sure you stop building your life with bricks. That's my whole objective. I want you, in your mind, to get in your mind that building with brick, brick is bad. Say it with me, brick is bad. One, two, three, brick is bad. Some of you won't like that idea. My wife's grandmother thought the best houses were built with bricks. She wouldn't like this message. Some of you who like nursery rhymes or little stories of like the three little pigs wouldn't like this either. Story of three little pigs, you know, three pigs, one built with straw, one built with sticks, and one built with brick. The bad wolf huffed and puffed, blew the houses down except for the brick house. And the brick house was standing, so you won't like this story. But did you know that story's not real? It's not a real story. So, what we're going to learn today is a true story, and I want you to open up to Genesis 11. And I'm sure your question is, what's wrong with brick? Come on. What's so bad about bricks? We're going to find out today in Genesis chapter 11 as we continue our Genesis series. Jared finished last week with the story, it was, a, it was a sad story, about Noah and his sons. And then you get to chapter 10, and it talks about all the nations that are descended from Noah and his sons. And in the middle of chapter 10, they take some, uh, a lot of ink is spilled about this one man. If you look at him in chapter 10, verse 6, it talks about the sons of Ham. The sons of Ham are Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Remember Jared last week talked about how Canaan is the emphasis of the descendant of Ham. But then you get this one son of Cush, you got in verse 7, sons of Cush, Siva, Havilah, Sabta, Sabakta. Then you get to 8, Cush fathered a guy by the name of Nimrod. Nimrod was the first on earth to be a mighty man. It's funny, when I was a kid and we called somebody a Nimrod, it was kind of a bad name. Like, you're kind of dumb, you Nimrod. No, Nimrod, it says here, was a mighty hunter before the Lord. What's fascinating, Nimrod would be kind of like a Kent City guy, you know? He loved to go hunting. Back in their time, God, one of the curses where God would send animals to just maul people, so a guy like Nimrod was a really... Good man to have around. But not only was he powerful, he, according to verse 10, had a kingdom named Babel. Now we go to chapter 11. We're talking all about Babel. This is the kingdom of Nimrod. And we are going to learn all about his building. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 11, let's begin reading. Now the whole earth had one language, and they used the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower 
with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, which means confused. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. That's the story and that's going to be what we're going to talk about this morning. If you notice right before you get to chapter 11, probably the headlines in your Bible say the Tower of Babel. But this is more than just a story about building a tower. We're going to learn about the heart of Nimrod and his people. They are prototypical of what I would say is the heart of the nation or mankind in general. And that heart is one that wants to expand their power and their prestige before the eyes of people on the earth. They want to be powerful. But Nimrod's families and clans at this time, it's speculative they had about 500 or more families. And I'm going to say they they joined together in the first joint venture. They probably invested their capital, put together all of their money, their effort to build bricks to do what I call the Babel experiment. So I'm going to call this the Babel experiment. And I call it an experiment because it's the first time ever in Scripture, for that matter in history, where a large group of people work together to reach the ultimate heights of success an achievement apart from God. They were trying to make a name for themselves apart from God. In fact, it says God told them to be fruitful, multiply, and spread over all the earth. They said, no, we're not going to spread. We're going to stay right here. We're going to do it our way. We're going to do it for our name. The way this story is usually discussed, it's used for explaining where the variety of races and ethnic groups come from, and a lot of pastors spend a lot of time on that, how it's, you know, you come from really two ancestors. We're all related. If you go down seven lines, somewhere you're related. I'm not going to go into that. Just all you got to do is buy a kit from heredity.com, ancestry.com, and you'll figure that out. Everybody's related to you. It's crazy. It's really crazy. While this is true that people use this for races, I think there's a far deeper and more important teaching that we must wrestle with, and that's what we're going to talk about. I think God is trying to tell us just how dangerous it is to build bricks. It's very dangerous. That's the point of the story. You'll see what I mean in a second. So to understand this, there's three keys. I'm going to say there's three keys to understand the story, and there's one purpose. The first key, as it says in chapter, or chapter 11, verse 1, the whole earth had one language and the same word. So the first artifact I want you to know about is their language. People at that time, 
We're in complete solidarity because socialists say that language is the most important thing in a society. It's what really makes you understand one another come together. And so these people spoke the same language and they used the same words. They were in solidarity. Nothing for them was ever lost in translation. As a result, we find a group of people that have no racism probably, no identity politics, wouldn't that be nice? No marginalized group, no privileged group, no misunderstanding, probably not as much prejudice as we do now. This had to be a great society. They were completely unified. I mean, isn't unity being one, one of the greatest virtues we are trying to achieve? If we could all just get along, the brotherhood of men, that's all we got to achieve and everything will be great. They had it. So you could say, first of all, they had oneness. They had strength and unity. Second artifact is it talks about bricks and mortar. Verse 3, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. They uh, were living, according to verse 2, in the plains of Shinar, and historians say in the plains of Shinar, which today is modern-day Iraq, where Babylon was built, that they didn't really have quarries and stone to use large buildings, so, but they had other materials. They had clay, they had sand. You mix that with straw and horse manure, mix with water, and you can make yourself some good bricks. I watched a couple of YouTube videos how to make bricks. It's hard work. You take these materials, you have to exert an enormous amount of pressure, and then apply intense heat. Sometimes they just let it bake in the hot sun. This would be a hot area, a hot, arid area, but normally you put it in a a uh, furnace gets rid of the gets rid of the steam the the water and it kind of solidifies the brick and then after it cools you get a nice strong brick takes a lot of hard work so you could say bricks in the story show us the amazing capacity humans have for invention and ingenuity cooperation and hard work so in my mind again that's a good thing isn't it unity is a good thing and so is hard work Invention, creativity, that's what this brick-laying people showed. So Nimrod and his people knew how to make some good materials. And then the third artifact is they wanted to build, in verse 4, a city and a tower. And the key is this tower. What is this tower? Much speculation. Most scholars believe it's called a ziggurat. Ziggurats were a pyramid-like structure where you'd build one layer after another. It wasn't a straight slope like you have in Egypt, but it would be tiered floors. And then ultimately it gets to the top where the top's flat. And historians would say on the top of that roof, they would offer sacrifices to their small g god. So you could say really a ziggurat was a place of idol worship, but here it was also, this word they used for tower is also a structure to show their superiority, their strength, it was to bring them fame and recognition and renown. Some scholars believe it was about 300 feet tall. That's 30 stories. Again, is this not a good thing to make a structure like that? Have you ever driven into Chicago and you look at the skyline and you look up and you see the Hancock's Tower and go, wow, isn't that cool? You never get mad and say, how dare they build that? We're kind of proud of what we can do. 
So to summarize these artifacts, we have a unified nation of people, I think that's a good thing, who are creative, brilliant, with great architectural acumen. They work very hard to make the bricks, and then they build a tower that impresses the known world. And then the question is, why? That's always the most important question. Why? Why do you do what you do? Why? Verse 4 gives us the purpose for them doing, making bricks. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. They did such a good job of making a name for themselves, God said, man, in verse 6, they'll, there's, there's nothing they won't be able to do. <laughs> they really can do a lot of things. Like God was actually giving them a compliment. But if you look at verse 7, he's kind of upset. So let's go down and therefore confuse their language. If this is such a good thing, why is God so mad? Why does he want to stop it? Why does he want to stop their unity, their hard work, and their progress? Maybe God, maybe God doesn't like it when humans work hard to accomplish great things. That might be the lesson. Maybe he likes keeping people scared and timid and poor and quit striving. Stop it. I like you miserable, not successful. Maybe that's the message. There are some people that actually believe Christianity, in fact, is for losers. Only the weak believe in God. Only you sniveling cowards who want to cry on Sunday believe in God. He's not for the strong-hearted. Actually, for a few years, I wondered the reason maybe I'm going into ministry is I couldn't face the real world. Is that why I'm doing it? So, is it wrong to work hard in order to name, make a name for yourself? Is that what's going on? So you could ask this question. I think we need to ask this question. Is ambition wrong? Is it wrong to try hard? Is it wrong to build great things? Is it wrong to make a name for yourself? Well, that's not that easy of a question to answer. In fact, it's interesting, it's ironic as I was studying the Tower of Babel. You know, the week that I'm preaching on the Tower of Babel, we're going to have a meeting. I'm proposing raising money to build a church. Wow, that, doesn't God plan things great? I have never heard a message on the Tower of Babel for a building project, but we're going to do one today. <laughs> Give all your money, God's going to destroy you and separate. It's a great, encouraging message. So you have to ask the question then, I mean, we have to deal with this, because I think in a lot of places, God talks about being humble. Is it wrong to try to be ambitious? Is ambition wrong? I would say, first of all, we all know it's not wrong to have ambition. So the first answer would be no. Because in order to grow and mature, people need goals. They need to dream. They need drive to accomplish goals. Though those ingredients put together are what make ambition. That's ambition right there. So how can this be a bad thing? Well, it's not a bad thing. Are we put on earth to be lazy? That's the question. Should we just be lazy? 
Is it okay for our sons to live in the basement playing Fortnite until they're 38 years old? Is that all right? Do you just want your daughter eating candy while she's binge-watching her favorite Netflix series again and again and again? Hasn't God designed us for more? The first part of Colossians 3.17 says, whatever you do, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Jared preached over the summer in Proverbs 26.14. He had one of the funniest illustrations ever, and he quoted, as a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. Remember he did that when he kept rolling over? That was tremendous, Jared. I've never been more proud of you. <laughs> Here's my favorite proverb. This is so cool. Proverbs 22:29. Do you see a man skilled at his work? He will serve before kings. That's ambition. That's not ambition. I don't know what is. So I think ambition and the desire to do great things is in all of us. Laziness and apathy ruin the soul. God wants you to be inventive, hardworking, accomplishing great things, especially together, like building a church. But what this story is really about is when ambition is used for personal pride and selfish glory. If that is why you do things, then ambition is deadly. So yes, if my goals, hard work, and accomplishments cause me to forget my God, hate my neighbor, because I've always got to compete and beat them and be better than them and tear them down, trash them, get their job, I'm better than that person. How come they get the raise? I can't stand that person. If that's what ambition drives us to do and allows this pride to ruin my soul, then ambition is not my friend. That's what the story's about. Nimrod and his people build a tower to thumb their noses at God. They were trying to prove they didn't need a God and were trying to usurp his reign and rule over their lives. It's like modern secularists who think God is silly and the notion of God is stupid. God had to confuse their language. If he didn't, he knew Pride has the potential of ruining humanity, and it was just getting started. It's just getting started. And if he didn't, they would become so impressed and sure of themselves, they would continue to raise generations who forgot God. Do you raise your kids to know God or you know what, son, I want you to be successful, make a lot of money, so why are you going to all that youth group stuff and everything else? You don't need to go to a school where they study. Go, go to a school where you get a big degree. Nimrod and his people were very successful in their accomplishments, but success is not always a good thing, especially if I lose God in the process. Many of us in here want to be successful. I do. I really do. And I want my kids to be. And we may even agree to attribute that success to God, but if that success comes, is it really for God or is it for me and my name? That is the question. Why do I do what I do? 
I want you to go to Deuteronomy 8. It's only four books to the right. Deuteronomy 8 to me is, this verse is written to Israel, but it is really applicable to Americans. And Moses is warning Israel after they get out of all the wilderness wandering where they're really, they're not rich or anything, but then when they get to the promised land and then they start making it, banking some big grapes and milk and honey. He's going to warn them in Deuteronomy 8, verse 10. He talks about when you eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good he has given you. So when you eat and you're full and your belly is getting big, thank God. And then he says, but take care or I'm going to warn you lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, you're banking it, you got those investment CDs, you got everything stored up, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 14 is the problem that wealth and goodness and success can cause you to forget. And then when, if you do forget, he's talking to his people, verse 19. Well, look at verse 18. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. That's really what was happening. They forgot God. He came down and said, I'm done. It's better to tear people up than have success without God. That's true in every life. Do you know that? It's better to be successful or not to be successful and miserable if you have God than be successful and forget about Him. Because eternity is real. In Genesis, go back to Genesis 11, verse 3. The end of the verse 3 is written in such a way to contrast two types of building materials. Verse 3 says, And they said to one another, this is Genesis 11:3. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And the way that it's written, it's like they traded brick for stone, or they didn't have stone, so they had to go to the second kind of material, the material that you really don't want, which is brick. Some versions say it was written that they exchanged brick for stone. No matter how you put it, brick was the replacement for the stone. If they had stone, they probably would have used it, but they didn't, so they had to create brick. It struck me funny. I just, I just did some speculation. It struck me funny because it reminded me of Romans 1.23 when it talks about the wrath of God is being revealed because men have exchanged the living God for idols. They exchange God for lesser things, things that are created in their image. It's like they had the good thing, but they exchange it. And it's almost like there's this. he's making sort of the same comparison with brick and stone. So I did just some research on every time you find brick in the Bible, what do you, what do you find? Here's what I found. Brick is always the product of hard, grueling labor and pain. And it is usually that labor is done by slaves, to fulfill the sadistic wants of a cruel master. 
if the bricks were not made on schedule, the slave would be threatened, beaten, and even killed. Bricks, when you read in other versions like in Isaiah and Jeremiah, bricks always wear out. They always topple. They're a terrible defense. And even I did some online research on how long, what's the integrity of a brick? How long does brick stand as a building material before it starts crumbling? And the average age is 100 years. It wears out. So I want to offer just a suggestion as we talk about bricks for a second. I think it's possible to symbolically say bricks represent the human desire to work and strive and fight for a personal glory that fades and never pleases. And to get this personal glory, a lot of times we end up being a cruel taskmaster to ourselves and other people Demanding for things to be done my way and on my time schedule. And if you don't, you're going to bear my wrath. What we do things for is for the sake of my name. And I'm incredibly harsh if it's not done the way I want. Maybe that's the reason we're always stressed out, is we're always building bricks for me. In my name, the way I want it, the way I think it should be done, on my time schedule. And same with my kids, and same with the people that, I, that serve me, they better do it my way. Human glory is a tough taskmaster. That is why I'm a tad bit nervous about starting a building project to some degree, because we're loaded with people who have dreams, expectations, time demands, and when those things aren't met, people get stressed out and harsh and cruel. Either bricks aren't being made fast enough or they're not made well enough because brick making is hard labor. I then decided to look up verses on stone. This too is surprising. All throughout the Bible, stones are made for many things. And you'll see God often asking for the use of rough Hone stones, meaning there's no polish in them, there's really no human design. Many times stones were they're not made by man, they're just supplied by God. And here's what I found about stones. Number one, stones are always the material God used to make his things. Early altars for sacrifice in Genesis are made out of uncut stones. Never bricks. Stones were used in making the Ten Commandments, the foundation of the temple. The floor of heaven is made from sapphire stones. In memory markers, remembering great things God has done are big stones that they gather and make a little pyramid out of. Second thing I found is stones were the weapon of choice for David in killing Goliath. He didn't kill Goliath with a brick, a stone. Just, just a thought. Throughout Scripture, there always seems to be one stone, however, that's always alluded to. Sometimes this stone is called the cornerstone. But surprisingly, the same stone is talked about how builders don't want to use this stone in their building. Human builders don't like to use this stone. It's an interesting phrase. When a man wanted to make their amazing man-made structure, this stone wasn't good enough for them. It wasn't impressive. It was cast aside, not even considered. But when God wanted to build, this is the stone he chose 
to be his cornerstone. The idea is that someday this same stone, this stone that no one wanted, you can find this in Daniel, is going to be so large it's going to crush all the nations and all the edifices, all the nations ever built. This one stone uncut, unhewn, is going to destroy all other stones. I wonder what this stone is. I wonder what this means. Kind of a weird phrase. A stone the builders rejected becomes the cornerstone. How does this apply to us? How do we build with a stone like that? I found some verses in the New Testament. Go to 1 Corinthians a second, chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 23. Actually, it's very, I'll just start in verse 19. For it is written, this is 1 Corinthians 1, 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I'll destroy him. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debtor of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach... Christ, crucified, a stumbling stone, a stumbling block, a scandal to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. I like verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world. To shame the wise. He's not going for personal glory, like our personal glory. He actually uses people that really won't take the glory because it will give him glory. It's, it's mind-blowing to me. And he starts with this stone, this stumbling block. 1 Corinthians 3.10 says, it's the foundation where we start. According to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I lay a foundation and someone else is building upon it, let each take care. For no one can lay a foundation other than what is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's the stone, the cornerstone. I want you to go to Colossians. I think Colossians puts pretty well how Christ as the stone is what we're to build on, but this other material, it really looks good, but it's shallow. Brick falls apart. This is Colossians 2, 6-8. Therefore, as you receive Christ the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So we build on Him. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition. So according to what impresses humanity, what makes a name in front of humanity. Don't build with that. Why? Well, because it's empty, shallow, build with Christ. So here's the synopsis of Babel and what I want to say. It's just one phrase. I'll say it twice. It is futile for a person to attempt to gain lasting security, success, and satisfaction in life apart from God 
and His Son, Jesus Christ. No matter how hard you work or how impressive is your skill or what you can accomplish, God will not allow His glory to be shared with anyone else, including you. I'll say it again, it is futile for a person to attempt to gain lasting security, success, and satisfaction in life apart from God and His Son, Jesus Christ. All right, so if that is true, in conclusion, if that is true, why be ambitious? Why try? Why run a race? Why? For that matter, why do anything? The answer is found in Psalm 115. Psalm 115 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Not to us, but to your name because you've done everything. Your love, your faithfulness is everything. It's everything to, it's everything to me. Keeps going by, why should a nation say, where's their God? Our God's in heaven. He does all he pleases. They're idols, you know, they can build those towers and make sacrifices, but their idols are silver, gold, brick, Made with human hands. They have no mouths. They have mouths but do not speak. They have ears but do not hear. They have hands, do not feel. Those who make them become like them. But oh Israel, trust in the Lord. He's their help. He's their shield. I like verse 12. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and in great. May the Lord give you increase in your children. So again, this story is warning us as we consider building even. Why build? Why should we even build? Why should we consider building? For the sake of our name or His? If it is for our name where we say, look what we did together. Look at Kent City Baptist. Aren't we something? The desire to keep going will soon wear down. Naysayers will start saying, we're giving our hard-earned money so we can pat ourselves on the back and compete with other churches. Is that what we're trying to do? What a waste. And people will stop. And they'll quit. And people, it's, they'll get weary like it's a hard taskmaster wanting you to build on their time and in their way for their name. But if we're doing it for His name, if we're doing it for His renown, His reputation, then you never get tired because I just trust Him with my money. I trust Him with my life. He can do what He wants for His name on His time. And He will do it. So I would say, use your life. Work hard. Be creative. Work together. But do God one favor. Don't build with brick. 